You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hey, I'm Steve Englehart, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Fantastic Four, episode 18B, uh, the second half of the epic collection called When Things Change. And this is covering a period of the Fantastic Four from 1988 to the end of 1988. (laughs) I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am your Fantastic Four host, Eric Findlay. And we are going to cover the second half. We decided to put the break exactly where it was uh, in the last episode because pretty much the rest of this volume is one big, long story. So there was no good place to stop. Right. And we said, okay, well, it's not too many issues, so it should be fine. (laughs) Except we get into reading this and we're like, there is so much here. It is so dense. There's so much stuff. It's unreal. So back... 20 years ago, when I, when I was reading like all the new stuff that was coming out, I didn't really dive back into back issues all that much. I was mainly yeah, concerned I. With, yeah, with going to the comic book store and picking up, you know, Ultimate Spider-Man or whatever was in my pull box the new at the time. And then, and I loved Fantastic Four. And so I went back and wanted to read more Fantastic Four. So I went to the back issue bins of our favorite comic shop, Tasmanian Comic Connection. Plug. Uh, yep, plug. <laughs> and they had all of these issues of Fantastic Four, like for two bucks each. And so I bought, over a period of time, I bought all of them. And uh, they that store has been running since these books came out new, since yep. these issues came out new. And so they just had a stock that nobody had bothered to, to buy over the years. And so I was able to get this whole run. Back 20 years ago, when I read this story, I hated it. And it's because I didn't go back to the back issues very often. I mean, I knew the Marvel cards. I knew the kind of the biggest, greatest hit stories and that kind of stuff because I read those descriptions on the back of those cards right. and they make references to them in the comics. But when I read this, I had literally no idea what was going on. Yeah, and and I tend to pride myself on knowing quite a bit of Marvel's history. <laughs> yeah. And even here, I had to dig deep on some things. Like I had to go back and look things up because I had no idea what it was referencing. There is just so much going on. So for the uninitiated, this is not a good volume to pick up. This is not a great volume to pick up. <laughs> And I was going uh, to mention maybe later, but I can mention it now, that um, as a Fantastic Four fan, this, I think, is not a great Fantastic Four um, era. It, with Reed and Sue leaving, particularly with Reed leaving, there's so much that goes on to try and make their adventures like the adventures, the scientific adventures that Reed stumbles onto, that it seems so forced. Like in here they're underground and they're like well before we go let's just wander around these caves a bit oh look there's something going on (laughs) and then and then it takes a committee of like 15 people to to figure out what's going on with all this interdimensional stuff right which i think is a nice touch like no ben is not going to figure this out on his own nobody's going to so that that reasoning is nice 
Uh, but instead but, of trying yeah. to find a new rhythm for this Fantastic Four, they try to make it fit the old rhythm. Well, I would say that the new rhythm is hopping along, taking things as they come, rather yes. than being exploratory and right. adventurous. Yeah. Uh, at one point, Johnny describes this adventure as Alice going through the rabbit hole. Yeah. And I think that's an ex- it's a great example or a great analogy because in Alice in Wonderland, that book is just told of small vignette stories. Alice goes to one character, does something with that character, and then goes leaves that character and goes on to the next. There's no really overarching plot in that book. Except it's, really to get home or whatever. That's the the, the loose right. kind of exactly. But even that, like, she doesn't really care about that when no. she gets into her adventures. It's, she, it's not like it's not like Wizard of Oz where I we need to follow the yellow brick road and get to the Emerald City and talk to the wizard. You right. Know, that's and that's, then, the, that's yeah. the overarching story. It's quite strong. But this one is yeah. to to bring it back to Fantastic Four. It's like yeah, they'll go through a portal and then they have an adventure with Belasco and then they go through the portal and they have adventure with the cat people and then they go through the portal and they have adventure uh, on this other planet. You know, it's it's that kind of thing where they're just hop skipping and jumping not knowing not really having any real reason to go really right i mean the reason is let's just find out more about these portals that have popped up but that's not the reason why they went into this adventure in the first place and it's not even the conclusion that they get at the end of yeah. of the adventure either which is what I, what i think um why i think that this doesn't really work that well is because it doesn't have that nice um neat introduction and conclusion that a scientific exploration would have. It's like, hey, I was looking at this and found this weird thing. Let's stop it. Let's go look at it, whatever. And then at the end, they're like, hey, and this is our conclusion. This is what we found out. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I didn't get that from here. And and, and I found that that was kind of lacking. Yeah. They do a, a couple of lines to try and tie it back to the beginning and stuff. But the the, the way, the, the place that, that the story eventually goes is right. so far removed from the beginning that it's like... Yeah, maybe it's just yeah. too convoluted. And maybe if they had done something a little more streamlined or straightforward, then maybe it would have worked. But yeah. yeah. But having said that, I really, really do like all of the continuity that is there. Like, I actually found it very interesting how Steve Englehart is able to take all of these elements and smush them all together right. in order to make, you know, it still is a cohesive story, even right. though it's and, convoluted. And now we're tying together every little bit of like unknown history in the Marvel Universe together. We're tying together the origin of the Savage Land and the Celestials and the Deviants and all yep. of that is all being tied together in in one sort of neat little package. And furthering the the history of the Cosmic Cube, that yep. plays a big part and stuff. Right. And uh, the interesting part is that I went to Mark Wade's History of the Marvel Universe that came out recently. Yep. And I tried to find any reference to anything that happened here, mm-hmm. and there's nothing. No, there isn't. They, there's nothing in there. But And they talk about a lot of the beginning of time and the beginning of the universe stuff in this book. Yeah. But apparently no one's folded it into the larger, you know, canon, I guess, or something. Yeah. And it's not, like, it's not even that it doesn't fit, and so they just ignore it. But it's I think it does fit with a lot of the other uh, stories about the origins of the universe and stuff like that. Um, it's just, it's not included. Yeah. It's just not. Whatever reason, yeah. 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 Well, the FF again—they're the linchpin of the Marvel universe. I mean, they were the first. The Hulk, I think, was the second, and then Spider-Man was the third. And Spider-Man went on to become maybe you know Thor and, and other people might have been in there. I don't at the beginning, but in any event. The FF were like the first 
but they kind of got overshadowed by Spider-Man after a while and all that. Right. Um, but still, they were the first, and they were kind of where everything else came from. <clears throat> and so, to my mind, everything in the Marvel Universe was open to the FF. I mean, you know, if you're writing a different book, you might not want to go all those places. But the FF, to me, are just kind of, even even if they weren't, you know, tied into the cat people or whatever they might be, they, you know, all that stuff was part of, um, part of their heritage, shall we say. So I was looking for things that kind of expanded, you know, not expanded, but kind of marked out different frontiers on, on the, on the Marvel universe that I could use in the FF. And again, it's, it, the, in terms of writing the story, it was just a thing of, Again, I start off down a road and I go, okay, well, then the next step would be this. Let's do that. And then the next step would be this and let's do that. And part of that, I mean, there's, there is, by this time, I certainly was a professional comic book writer. So I was, you know, part of me was thinking big epics are good. Uh, that's, that's a good thing for selling comic books. And I, you know, when I did... I'm sorry to keep referencing other books, but no, go the for FF it. Is, is fairly late in, 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 you know, in my original run. Yep. Um, when I did Avengers Annual 2, which was a time travel thing with Rama Tut and Immortus and Kang and all that, yep. um, somebody said to me, you know, nobody ever gets time travel right. There's just too many things you have to think through. <laughs> so that, to me, is a challenge. I said... I'm going to do it, you know, and I, and I was real happy with the way that the, the, uh, the, that time travel thing came out thinking about, you know, the, the contradict, uh, the problems involved in making that work. So that kind of is one place where I kind of said, you know, I guess I can handle these big things. Let's, you know, I, I liked to write things as big as possible, I guess, you know, just really get them out there and, and, and trust in myself to keep it all, tied together well let's go on with our story then and uh, and jump right into this very first issue uh, issue number 313 it's called the tunnels of the mole man and it starts off very simple the reason that they're going to go visit the mole man is because uh way back in the very first issue that's contained in the epic collection called all in the family this is when thing returns uh, 297 it's the marvel 25th anniversary special with the the border that has all the characters around it and stuff and uh thing has decided to live underground with the Mole Man as outcasts. And Mole Man has this machine that could potentially turn him back into a human, but he uses it on Johnny just as the, the thing collapses because Johnny had a, something wrong with his face at that time. And so he remembers this machine and says, you know what, I betcha we can turn Sharon back into human-looking using Mole Man's machine, at which they, they don't really go into a whole lot of detail about where Mole Man got the machine or... No. And and we discussed this when we were talking about that uh, collection, the whole um, concept of of the thing uh, being healed and being fixed and all that was very glossed over. Yes, very. And in fact, it kind of is glossed over here by the end of this story as well. Yeah. <laughs> 
But yeah, so they go to Project Pegasus because right. they know that there are underground caverns underneath Project Pegasus that will lead them to the Mole Man. Right. Project Pegasus comes from the Marvel 2-in-1 series, which was Thing's ongoing series before it was renamed Thing, The Thing. Yeah. So Project Pegasus is, <laughs> of course, it's an acronym, yep. which and this is the most convoluted one. It stands for Potential Energy Group slash Alternate Sources slash United States. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. And it's it's an alternative and unusual energy research facility turned superhuman prison turned energy research facility. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was converted, then converted back. And um, they occasionally hire superheroes um, as guards, uh, especially when it was uh, during the um, the prison phase, but also when it just during the science phase, um, such as the thing in Quasar, or most recently, um, Darkhawk and Robbie Ryder when he became a Nova Corman. He's the younger brother of um, Richard Ryder. Right. Um, yeah, they were. They also worked at uh, uh, Pegasus. Um, it's also a very large cylindrical facility bored deep into the top of a mountain. Oh. So, um, like you, you enter at the top of the mountain and then you just go down and down and down and down and down. Hmm, cool. Yeah. Kind of like my Minecraft worlds. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so there is also a reference to Wondar. That's an old buddy of things from the right. early days of Marvel 2 and 1. He's, he kind of falls out of the sky and Ben takes him under his wing. He's an adult with a child mind. And eventually he becomes this weird character named Aquarian who plays a big role in the whole Project Pegasus story. So they make a reference to that. Uh, that's from years ago. And there's also the doctor that they meet there is Dr. Devere. Yeah. And he, something sinister is going on with him. And they never talk about they it again. Yeah, they don't talk about it throughout this entire story. So I'm thinking that there's only one more volume of Steve Englehart's run after this one, which hasn't been released as an epic collection yet. I don't know if they come back to that story or if it's something that just doesn't happen because Englehart is kicked off the book. And one thing, it could be also that it's continued in another story because that's something that's happening a lot here is that... Like there's, in a different book entirely? Right, yeah. And there's no reference to it, but um, there's a lot of overlapping of stories from different, uh, and continuations of stories from different titles. A lot of that is because Steve Englehart was writing a bunch of them. Right. I mean, he was the writer for West Coast Avengers at the time, so yep. there's a lot of West Coast Avengers elements that come into this story here. Uh, there's a, He was writing Silver Surfer at the time, and uh, so there's a lot of Silver Surfer elements that are coming in here as well. And he had previously written Defenders, Avengers, Captain America, Captain Marvel, and um, and Doctor Strange. And a lot of that stuff a lot is of referenced in here. in here. Did he write Fear? Probably, I don't think so. No, he no. didn't. Because that's a big but part of this That's as well. a big part of this as well, for sure. <laughs> so at this point in Marvel, they had uh, created a whole bunch of different underground races. There's this whole world of subterranea that's going on. And it starts as far back as like Avengers number four has the Lava Men in it. Yeah. Um, or Avenger, Avengers number three, I think, has the Lava Men in it. Uh, way, way back in the 60s. And of course, Mole Man is introduced in Fantastic Four number one. And Tyrannus is introduced in Hulk number three, I think it is. Like all of these characters go way, way back. And now in the 80s in Marvel, they've gotten to the point where they're all now kind of in this, they're warring factions now fighting for uh, control of Subterranea. Right. So um, the Lava Men had their leader, Jinku, who the... Um, uh, well, hold on. It goes back oh. further than that. 
No, no. It, so I mean, I, um, I mean, like now at this point, they oh, sort yeah. of had their leader Jinku, but he was defeated a little while back. Um, Tyrannoids have uh, Tyrannus, and the Molites had Moleman, but most of their leaders are actually not here anymore. Right. They've so, all been defeated recently. So I guess there's this struggle for for power or yeah. something like that. Yeah, kind of a vacuum in, yeah. in the underground. But it, it's interesting because it all starts with the Celestials, and there's this great story. Uh, it's actually just a backup feature in one of the Avengers annuals in the 90s because there is this one story called the subterranean wars which kind of all of the stuff that we're seeing in this issue comes to a head in the subterranean wars annual crossover story Mm -hmm. and uh, in peter sanderson who is known for being uh like the head marvel historian like he knows everything about marvel put together a really nice short story about the history of subterranea where it all comes from and so basically there's the celestials who created the eternals and the deviants right and the eternals lived above and the deviants lived below. They went underground. And the idea is the Celestials took like humanity and like tweaked them. Yeah, the Eternals are the the better part of humanity and the deviants are kind of a, a, a corrupt lower, form of yeah, humanity. Yeah, like a slightly devolved or something like that. Yeah. And um, Eternals. Created the Inhumans. Uh, right, yes. And then the deviants created... Um, they created the Gortokians and the Tyrannoids and the Moloids. Yes. And these are all, the, the Gortokians are supposed to be kind of their version of humans. Yeah. And the Gortokians, a section of the Gortokians split off and found an underground demon and started worshiping him. And he turned them into lava men. So that's where the lava men come into play. Right. And then the Moloids and the uh, Tyrannoids were created to be their slaves. Yes. The, de- the Deviants were kind of supposed to be the slaves to humans and Eternals. Yeah. Um, and when they broke off, they're like, well, let's create our own slave labor. Yeah. And so then the Tyrannoids and the Moloids, the tri- Tyrannoids are sort of more the heavy labor type people, and the Mo- Moloids are the subservient type yeah. of servants. And then the Moloids attached to Mole Man and the Tyrannoids attached to Tyrannus. And there we go. We, and there are actually a few more uh, even like underground races, but these are the ones we're dealing with kind of in this story right. here. <laughs> That's a lot of history <laughs> yeah. already in this first issue. And we're not, we haven't even scratched the surface of where oh, this story is going. That's right. Um, by the way, we also start with uh, in this issue with a um, uh, flashback um, to the previous issue, 312. Um, where we discovered that Doom had been planting device security devices in the Four Freedoms Plaza when it was built. Right. And um, this flashback tells us that they got rid of them. <laughs> yeah. And they, this ha- that happens in a lot in these issues where information is left out. We like jump ahead in time and then it's covered in a, a flashback, but it's flashing back to something we haven't seen before. And I think the reason for that in this story in particular is that they wanted to start off with Project Pegasus. Right. Like that makes an interesting story because right. especially in the 80s, Project Pegasus was still quite a well-known thing. Not as well-known now, but it was a big deal. And so to start that off, uh, the issue off with a bang and then use Ben to kind of just recount the, the stuff that we missed between the issues. You know, it's a good storytelling technique. Right. Uh, they, yeah. Do- uh, are we going to talk about the story? Here? I don't know. Are we going to talk about the story? There's not really a whole lot to say. Do- Mole Man, he's missing. He's kind of run away from his responsibilities, kind of because Ben collapsed. Well, first of all, he collapsed his, uh, his, collapsed fortress. his fortress. Yeah. So, um, but also he just felt rejected by Ben. Which is kind of an interesting thing for Mole Man. Right. So um, when Ben felt rejected by the world, he went to Monster Island and befriended the Mole Man because they were kind of um, surface world rejects together. 
But then when he stopped the mole man from taking over the, the surface world and like left him to go back to it, mole man felt so rejected that the one person who would understand him and also feel the same thing has rejected him. So now Mole Man is in this great depression. Nobody wants him. Yeah. Uh, except the Moloids. Except the Moloids. The Moloids are, are uh, trying to, they're desperately trying to find him. And partly because they, by design, um, crave somebody to serve, but also because they're now being oppressed by the Tyranoids. Um, and uh, they've sort of taken up residence in the throne room, the Mole Man's throne room, and taken up his weapons and, and are trying to um, war against the Moloids. So they want somebody, a leader, to come lead them against them. So through this adventure, they find out that there's one door that the Moloids have never been allowed to go in, one cavern. So they go in there to see if Mole Man is there, and they find a portal that takes them somewhere else, or Mole Man steps through the portal or something, I can't remember. Uh, they, they walk through the portal. Oh, they walk yeah. through the portal. And it, this is... How they explain this is that this is how Mole Man is able to travel great distances all over the world. And if you think about Fantastic Four number one, where his plan is to uh, to dig underneath nuclear reactors all over the world, yeah. and they're just kind of sinking into the ground all over the place. Like, how did Mole Man actually do that? This kind of answers right. the question. He I used mean, these portals to get to different places in the world. I think the the explanation at the time was... Was a the monsters? He's not with all the monsters. The monsters just have gone out and and like do it at the same time. And B, you know, he just rides his giant monsters as his giant monsters dig through underground. Yeah, but that's still going to take a long it's time. Still going to take a long time. But we're talking like in the in the in the sixties in the Silver Age. Right. Iron Man could like bore a hole through the center of the Earth and come out on the other side. That's like, right. Within minutes. Yeah. Like, that's something. That, <laughs> so the Silver Age, you know, played fast and loose with or, that you kind know, of he's, stuff. But he's he's going to fly from New York to to France in like you know half an hour or something. But I still think this is kind of reconciling a lot of those types of issues that right. people had with Mole Man. And yeah. Not that, I don't know if anyone really cared yeah. all that much there, about Mole Man. Um, there are two references here that weren't cited. Uh, Mole Man, or the Moloids talk about the Lava Men invading, which happened in Avengers 236, October 1983. And Human Torch, uh, when he fights the Lava Men, they talk about uh, Jinku and Thor and the Human Torch battled Jinku, the Lava Man Witch Doctor, in Marvel Team Up 26, 1974. Okay. There we go. Yeah. Nice. Uh, one character development here Sharon catches Johnny. Johnny's placed in a similar situation right. where Johnny's falling from the sky, and this time Sharon actually catches him because she is getting over her fear of men because well, she has this different body now. And and the thing that we see throughout, even in this ish, uh, this, um, volume here is she's not actually getting over her fear of men however she's able to mask it because of her strength okay yeah that's interesting yeah that's true because uh like when the ice creatures yeah yeah so she says you know uh, in in this point here she says oh i can touch him and not fear him because i am so strong now it could also be that she can't feel the, yeah. the touch. That's also part because, of it, maybe. Uh, yeah. yeah, I know that she's all stony. She's all stony, so she doesn't have the same sort of nerves as humans do. The, the one last thing I wanted to mention, which is kind of weird, is um, the Mole Man, his green outfit is is explained as like a heat prevention suit, so he oh, go to yeah. the depths of the earth. And then the Lava Men pull him into, into lava. Into molten lava, right. And, but he doesn't have a helmet. So. Yeah. <laughs> his skin is still making contact with the lava. Right. He so, would be burned to a crisp. Yeah, okay, so maybe his body's fine, but his head's gone. <laughs> or or. 
still like his head's gone and then and it, it would goes, eat like, through into, the rest yeah. of his body. His clothes will still be yeah. there. But <laughs> we'll find a very nice green suit, but that's it. Yeah, I found that odd too. Yeah. Uh, Crystal's powers actually were interesting in this as well. Just the fact that she can uh, take heat away from people. Uh, right, con- yeah. Because she, she controls the elements, so it's really hot. Yeah, and then she the idea cool of um, escaping by uh, using the moisture in her breath to create a steam explosion in the lava. That's really cool. Yeah, there's some interesting ideas there. Okay, should we move on to number 314? Sure. 314, titled The Scenic Route or The Scenic Route. yeah um and man do they take the scenic route uh on the front cover we have a uh big statement from the pages of the x-men bolasco enough said and this is important because this is right after the magic limited series where iliana rasputin is transported to limbo as a child and then grows up there spends years there becomes the dark child and then comes back uh as as a as a full-grown teenager yeah as magic yeah yeah and it's like that was a big deal when that came out and uh she develops uh or rather belasco develops out of her soul the uh, soul stones right and um uh that's part of what gives her her like demony side so to have Belasco pop up here, well, I think would probably sell some books. Yeah. However, he doesn't really do much no, in this really issue. Does. It's he kind really of doesn't. very disappointing how yeah. much he's not a big role in this issue. Um, so in this issue, uh, we have one small little uh, tidbit of, of Alicia where she's starting to do some artwork again, some sculpting, and she's showing it to a, um, I don't know if it's her agent or, or a, uh, you know, some sort of art critic or something. But then the sky is on fire. And I find this really interesting because the last time the sky was on fire... What was it, Inferno? Galactus. Oh, Galactus. Oh, actually, maybe... maybe I, I don't remember when Inferno was in relation to this. Maybe it was Inferno. But... Um, uh, but yeah, Galactus, uh, the sky was on fire when he came. Wow, that's right. They don't really give an answer for why the sky was on fire. Not in this issue. Do they in the future? Yes. Is it because of the Comet Men? No. Oh, I'll have to, I, I missed that completely. You'll have to point that out to me yep, when we I, get to I, that I'll, issue. I'll do that. Okay. It's, it's bizarre and it really doesn't talk about it much, but, uh, well, I'll mention that. Um, so the Fantastic Four are, it, they've come back from the Mole Man's um, little area and fighting the Lava Men, etc. Um, and they're about to leave and they go, well, why don't we poke around the tunnels down here? Let's head this way. And they uh, stumble upon this um, giant fortress. This is through one of the warps. Through though, one right? of the warps, yeah. yeah. And uh, it turns out uh, while they're doing this that Crystal is captured from, from behind them. Um, so they, they follow the trail to find out where she is and it turns out she's been captured by Belasco. And I love this part here. Um, Belasco goes, uh, Crystal is going to be my, um, is going to be my wife. Um, I am done with, um, Shanna and Ilyana. And the, and the thing goes, well, her name's not Chrisanna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't have her. <laughs> her name you, doesn't end in A&A. You always have a thing for Anna's. Yeah, that was that was pretty good. Um, so they get into this, you know, battle with uh, with Belasco, and then there are like these random fireballs that come, and they're not from the Human Torch. Yeah, so that that has nothing to do with a fire in the sky, though. Or does it? Or does it? Okay, sure. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then, yeah, they they kind of like knock them out, and they go through another portal and end up with the Cat People. And the cat people are a race of humanoids that have magically been evolved into cats since like the Middle Ages. 
And the one that we know kind of the most is Greer Grant Nelson, yep. uh, the Tigra. She was with the cat people when she, before she became a cat like, person actually herself. a cat person. Yeah. And they magically transformed her into a half-human, half-cat person uh, to save her life. Yeah. And she joined the West Coast Avengers. And that's running at the same time as this. So Steve Englehart is writing West yes. Coast Avengers. And so they just had an adventure. In fact, Thing was on West Coast Avengers right for, for two issues, issues 9 and 10. Uh, well, I mean, he was around he was, for he was more around that. there, but he was officially on the team for, for two issues. Yeah, uh, right. That was when Steve Englehart was writing it as well, yeah. right before he came back to replace She-Hulk as in the Fantastic Four, and they had adventures with the Cat People. So that's why Thing knows these guys right here. They're in an area underground called the Land Within. Yeah, and uh, and they have ties to Belasco as well. They've sort of discovered him. And uh, I don't know, they're not worshipping him or, or anything, right? Um, they kind of do because they recognize that, you know, he could probably destroy them. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's a weird relationship that they have. They're obviously there with him, uh, but I don't, know ex- I don't know exactly what's going on. Yeah. So anyway, um, then we get to page 226. There's another magical fireball that's not the Human Torch. And here's where we get our non-answer about what's going on here. <laughs> okay. We see an image of Shumagorath, who is the giant one-eyed tentacle monster uh, yeah. from the Doctor Strange comics. Which was created by Steve Englehart when he was writing right. Doctor Strange yeah. way back in the 70s. And he's fighting on like um, some sort of mystical, spiritual level. He's fighting Doctor Strange. And they're throwing images of Earths at each other. <laughs> and I don't know what that has to do with anything, but it looks like when he when they generate these when they take the the image of Earth and like try to throw at each other, it be, goes on fire. So that explains the fire in the sky and like the random fireballs. The, these these magical guys are throwing fireball Earths at each other. Um, sure. Now now here's the thing. Uh, it says this is in Strange Tales number fourteen. So you have to go there to find out like exactly what's going on. The weird thing is. Doctor Strange has long blonde hair. And an eye patch. And an eye patch. This is because he is merged with Ariok, one of the lieutenants of Shumagorath. So to defeat his lieutenant, Doctor Strange like absorbed this guy's powers <laughs> yeah. into himself and it gave him part of the, his appearance. So the question is, why on earth is it are these panels I in this don't story? No. It's just so it's weird. It's so random. It it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, it doesn't. I don't understand why. And then it's over. It's here, yeah. It, and so Belasco kind of makes a reference like, "Oh, because I'm a mystical guy, I can see things you can't." And then they just drop it. Yeah. And the Fantastic Four jump in a boat and sail away. The only reason I could possibly think is that they're trying to cross promote Strange Tales. Right. So I wonder if maybe Strange Tales um, drops these guys in in one panel or something to try and draw people over here. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, uh, it's just very strange. It doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> so they, they jump in a boat and it turns out to be the River of Oblivion, which leads to a stone wall. And the stone wall's got another teleportation warp in it. And they find themselves at the feet of Master Pandemonium. Ooh. So Master Pandemonium is another character from West Coast Avengers. Steve Englehart created him for to be kind of the main villain for West Coast Avengers in those early days. And he's a pretty weird guy. 
Yeah, he's got demon arms and legs uh, because of a uh, because of a deal with Mephisto, and they can turn into like demon creatures. He basically is made up of demons because that's what yeah. pandemonium means. Right, is like, like made all, up of all, all demons. demons. Yeah. And so yeah, he is just he can spew out demons like constantly. <laughs> he can have as many that just come out of his body as possible. Mm-hmm. He's got this weird hole in his his uh, stomach. stomach as well that's shaped like a heart, and he has to uh, star or that's shaped like a star, and he has to travel to many different points of the universe in order to reclaim the parts of his soul in order to make which himself is, whole again. Which is going to play a huge part in an upcoming Avengers story. Right. But not here. Not here. He's just kind of here. And so what's interesting about this is that uh, Master Pandemonium, if you read the West Coast Avengers story where they visit the, the cat people, Pandemonium is there. And he falls into the River of Oblivion. Right. And so this is uh, West Coast Avengers 9, I believe. Yeah. And so... Where did he go? They don't answer that question in, in West Coast Avengers. Nobody knows. He just kind of disappears. Everybody thinks he's dead. But now we find out that he has gone through this portal. Th- people didn't know there was a portal there right. in West Coast Avengers either. Um, but we found out there's a portal here. The Fantastic Four are going as well. And now we are r- reaching the next issue here, issue number 315. But before we find out where they go, we have a long story about wow. Morbius. This was so weird. I don't know why they start with... I mean, reading on, I, I know why they start with Morbius. But it's such a weird way to start this book. It was weird, yeah. So the splash page has Morbius. And it has the Fantastic Four's heads on there. Just so that we know that this is Fantastic <laughs> Four that you're reading. We didn't get the wrong book. Because you would not know the first half of this book is telling this story about Morbius and his his adventures in outer space in right. the pages of Adventure into Fear way back in the 1970s. Yeah, so this recaps basically Fear 21 to 24, which uh, explains why he's with the cat people. And because um, we see him on the, on the splash page here being thrown into the river of oblivion by the cat people. Why is he with them? Well, yeah. the, and, and I, I'm, I'm really surprised there's no editorial note here. Um, but you should go back and read Fear 21 to 24. That tells you exactly why he was there. It's going to be in an upcoming Morbius epic collection that's coming out to tie in with the uh-huh. movie. So I'm excited Good. to pick that yeah. up because I want to know more about this story. Yeah. You think about Morbius and you're like, this guy's a half vampire and stuff. But he, in the 70s, he was used as like in outer space. He got constantly sent all over the place. Yeah. In one issue of Marvel 2-in-1, he was erased by the Eraser, which sent him to Dimension X where he lived for many years. <laughs> it's like... Morbius is a weird character. Yeah. He has a, a bizarre back history. And so in order, in, in following with the bizarre nature of Morbius, we have this uh, flashback, which is not actually just a flashback. It's a flashback within a flashback within a flashback. <laughs> yeah. or, sorry, sorry. We start off with a flashback within a flashback, and then Morbius in that flashback flashes back to tell the origin of the planet Arcturus, or the uh, Arcturus 4. The star, or whatever. No, not the star. Yeah, the, the, the planet. The fourth Arc- planet that they're on. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, and so that's where we have a flashback inside of a flashback inside a flashback, because it turns out this is all being recounted by Master Pandemonium. <laughs> yeah. Because he's reading because it he's on reading a, it stone a tablet, tablet <laughs> that Morbius wrote. Yeah. And then he's recounting this to the Fantastic Four. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. That's right. I didn't realize that. It is really oh, like four flashbacks back. Yeah. That's it's so, so... so convoluted. <laughs> <laughs> and then, luckily, by the time we get another flashback about Master Pandemonium and the West Coast Avengers, it's out of the flashbacks. Right. So, yeah. 
<laughs> it's it's a tough read though because you're just like I have no idea how this connects to anything. Yeah, it's I um I actually didn't write any notes for this issue because I didn't really know what to write. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Um there's a reference to Secret Wars 1. Yep. Um which is great because we're just about to get into Secret Wars 3. Yeah. Um and then at the very end, um as sort of like the Deus Ex, ex Machina kind of thing, we get an appearance by Comet Man. Comet right. Man had a 6-issue limited series where uh what's his name? Steven. Yep. Uh Steven Steve Yep, he goes off into space and gets vaporized by a comet trail but then is reconstituted by um, his new alien buddy, Max. And when that happens, he's, he gains the powers of teleportation, strength, was, you know, other things. And so then he just flies around in this comet-like spaceship. Um, Reed gave him a device to help control his powers in this miniseries of his. And also one thing to note is that his brother killed his wife and almost killed his son. So he's like trying to build up his ability with his powers so he can go get revenge. I feel like maybe the six issue miniseries was supposed to lead into something more. Or, or maybe it, it's supposed to be an ongoing series and it, they cut it off at six. And then this is the continuation of the story. Yeah, like, it feels like this it was part of the story that was intended and then never really like, because I mean, like I said, he's, well, he wants to get revenge for uh, the murder of his wife. Yeah. And he never does in his series. Um, and he doesn't hear either. No. And I think he does in the pages of Marvel Comics Presents. Mm. I, I'm not certain, but I know that he's got an arc there. And that's kind of the last time we see him ever <laughs> until a, like a one panel right. appearance in modern comics during Civil War or something like yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. I will say, though, I really do like the artwork in here. We have a great team of Keith Pollard and Joe Sinnott. And Joe Sinnott, uh, because he's such an amazing inker, really gives it that classic FF kind of feel. Yeah. So the fights with Master Pandemonium and all these demons it looks really cool it does it really does uh, master pandemonium has a really cool design these guys are great at making um interesting unique looking demony creatures yep yeah but then again at the end of this issue we have another real just coincidental type thing they go we want to get back to earth and um this alien friend of comet man max uh, goes, I know how to do that. There's a portal right here. And he kicks a rock. Yeah. We think it's coincidental, but later on we find it's right. actually not that coincidental. No. Yeah. So that takes us into Fantastic Four 316. This one is called Cold Storage. We pick up kind of where we left off, except from the point of view of Alicia. She, um, the uh, group has reappeared in Antarctica. And uh, they have called together all of the, rela- uh, the related people uh, to this, this whole story. Um, and they also called Alicia to come join them because um, Human Torch through this whole thing has really been wanting to see her. Um, he's been struggling with his feelings for, uh, for Crystal. And he's like, I just need to see my wife. Yep. Um, so this group it, um, consists of the Fantastic Four. Um, Kazar and Shanna and also Morbius, who is a human now. Yes, um, Morbius stays human for quite a while, I think until the 90s, until he, when he gets his own series again, turns back into a living vampire. And they put him in the, uh, the Spider-Man animated series. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the Savage Land is going through some weird times right now as well, because technically it's destroyed. Right. So um, Joro, servant of Terminus, Terminus from Fantastic Four 269, 
destroyed the technology that was making the Savage Land, uh, which was keeping it like warm and tropical. Um, and that happened in Avengers 257, which is right around yeah. this time. And they also have connections with ago. Belasco. Yeah. And so that's why Kazar and Shana are both here to talk, to try and piece things together. And of course, they bring in Morbius because Morbius himself went to Arcturus. Master Pandemonium doesn't want to stick around, so he just takes off. Right. And then I guess Ben has a little conference with a whole bunch of people to figure out what's going on. And meanwhile, uh, this horde of ice people start attacking them. And Crystal, Ms. Marvel, and the Human Torch have to kind of defend the, the base from this army of ice people. One thing that's kind of annoying, but actually kind of neat at the same time, is um, Crystal often says something along the lines of, well, if I use this power, that's not going to work on them. So I'm going to use this element instead. We have to draw it, drive it home that she has yeah. multiple powers at her disposal. Exactly. So in this one, it's like, well, I could use fire, yeah. but I could just manipulate the ice on them instead. Right. The water. There's one point that's kind of awkward in here. When they first meet up, Alicia has heard that Ben has a new form, but of course she can't see it. So right. she asks to feel Ben and that makes everyone kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Which, I mean, it makes sense. Oh, for sure. She wants to know what he looks like now, but uh, it, it is kind of odd because he's like, this is what she used to do when we were together. Yeah. Feeling me all over. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Alicia is put in the care of, of two guards and their names are Lee and Kirby. Yes. I was going to make a mention <laughs> to that. And then there's another character in the next issue that I want to point out yep. as well. Um, but yeah, Lee and Kirby, that's a good reference. Uh, so in the end here, the last half of this issue is... The explanation. The explanation. So oh, this is like, I don't know, so dense. And you need to know, you have to be well versed in the Comet Man limited series, Kazar the Savage, Eternals, Adventures into Fear and Avengers. And West Coast Avengers. And, and West Coast Avengers uh, in order to know everything that's going on apparently here. And they just, they just, uh, they tie all of these elements into a big, big, long story. And this is where I was talking about, this is like the beginning of the universe kind of stuff. Yeah. And they don't really make any mention of it in the Mark Wade's history of the Marvel Universe. Yeah. What's interesting is um, between this issue and the last one, Really what we have is one comic book issue in the middle that's bookended by the Morbius story yeah. and this origin story. True. Well, I, I have to say, though, I did learn a whole bunch of stuff going through this. I it, Yeah, if you could keep track of it, then it's actually kind of interesting. Where I started to lose track of things were uh, the history of the Comet Men right. and their uh, ties to... And the what are they called? The um, Fort... Fortesques or something like that? Forteskians. Forteskians. Yeah, whatever that is called. Yeah, and their relationship to this alien species called the Nirwali. Right. Um, But the most important part is the Forteskians and the Nirwali and some others were all hired by the Beyonders to do this stuff. Uh, we don't know that yet. They're hired by somebody. Sorry, right. Yes. They're hi- they were, have been all hired to do something. And so they they were the ones who installed the heater below the Savage Land so that this unknown being right. could use it as a preserve for different stages of evolution. And when, and when it was uh, damaged, there was another group sent to repair it. 
Yes, and then the comet men are used, or the comet men's race are used to check back every once in a while on the different things to make sure right. everything's going okay. So that's weird stuff there. They throw in a little history of Atlantis, which I don't know how that really ties into things. Well, it um, because it ties in the Savage Land had a neighboring um, area called Pangea. Oh, and, right. Um, and there, the the devastation of Pangea and Atlantis are related. Right, and then the devastation of that is what sealed uh, over top of Savage Land, which made it an underground, an mm. underground uh, something like something, that, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, and <laughs> yeah. uh, and but but uh, it's what sank Atlantis, and yeah, right. Oh boy, yeah, so much going oh, on. Oh man, and we didn't even talk about the Lemurians, who are also tied to some of the uh, the um, like the deviants and all that kind of stuff. Right. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot going on. So anyway, they they figured they the the answer to all of their questions, which I guess the, I don't even know what the questions are. The I question, yeah, the, no. The question is who created the portals, and 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 who is the uh, who is hiring all of these alien races to do all this stuff? And so they they say the answer must be we need to look up the serial number or something in the the heater, the space <laughs> heater underneath yeah. the Savage Land. <laughs> if we can get to the heater, well, first of all, we can prop maybe like fix it and restart the Savage Land. Yeah. But also, we can maybe find out more. And so they crack it open. And, <laughs> and this is the weirdest thing Written ever. inside the heater is just the word beyonder. And this thing's got to be like uh, like miles long. Yeah. But this is a shock uh, to Ben, who's like, I'd never want to hear that name again. Because yeah. the, the beyonder kind of ruined his life for a while. Like, yeah. He stayed on Battleworld and had a and relationship, had a relationship there. with a fake woman who was brought out of his subconscious or whatever. And he finds out that's fake. Then he goes back and his girlfriend is married to a human torch like that's a i don't know there's a lot going on there for yeah. ben he, he over the course of the two secret wars he doesn't want to have anything to do with the beyonder again uh by the way at the beginning of this issue there's a warning in this incredible issue man is it incredible uh you will find one word you never thought you'd see in a marvel comic again <laughs> and then here on the last page beyonder yeah why would they write their name like that in that in, in such large letters it's so weird anyway i don't know yep Anyway, the interesting thing to note is there is a distinction here between the Beyonder and the Beyonders. And they seem to treat it like the the Beyonder, the person that they know as the Beyonder that they've experienced before, is maybe not one of these Beyonders. Right. They certainly have different purpose. Yeah. And different Um, different goals. Later on, it is revealed that he is one of them. Sort of. Um, No, no, he is. Uh, the race of the Beyonders, like they all kind of look like him and stuff. And uh, where does it say that? Um, in <laughs> Secret Wars. Oh, the new one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right before, um, right before the well, new Battle World and everything. That's kind of a retcon from what we learn in this issue no, or yeah, this storyline here. Yeah, then it is. later on. It is. Yeah. Anyway, Johnny makes reference to the Wackos. Yeah. And he's uh, and he means the West Coast Avengers. He's not just calling them like weird. Wacko is actually a uh, uh a, an abbreviation for West for Coast. For West Coast. Yeah, and the others are the Echoes. <laughs> yes. The Wackos and the Echoes. And so yeah. that's what's written on their jerseys when they have their annual baseball softball match, game or, or softball or, game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I really miss. The X-Men used to have their their annual game and the yep. Avengers used to have their annual game. Those were fun issues. They just don't have any recreational time anymore. That's right. They're always always saving the universe. 
This next issue, number 317, is called Last Kiss, and the Fantastic Four and the Comet Men go to the Nirwali homeworld in order to find out who's hired them to build the furnace in the Savage Land. And so Morbius is gone, and Kesar and Shauna, they're gone. They all go back to wherever they were, and uh, Alicia goes home, and is, we're just left with kind of the, the, the main core Fantastic Four plus these Comet Men guy guys and we this is where we find out that um it's well alicia has the idea actually that i've heard the, the term beyonders before what about them but not in terms of the actual guy so maybe no. it's not the guy yeah so but that gives them a little a little clue or whatever so they go to the home world and, and they the people the Nirwalis say, oh, we never actually spoke like directly face to face with anyone. They always communicated through this device over here. And this device um, was just like a some sort of a box that emits some sort of radiation or something. Right. And so uh, and when Ben pokes at it, he's like, I know where I've seen this before. This is Reed has one of these and it's the doorway to the negative zone. Yeah, it's the radical cube. And it's, it's like giant. It's huge. This is a tiny miniature version that just sits on a table. And this is going to lead them to the next stop in their adventure. Right. Interestingly, Reed, when, when he comes back, is going to make a radical dodecahedron in issue 337. Oh. Which leads them on a crazy adventure. <laughs> through of course. Time and space. Go listen to our other epic That's collection. right. That's <laughs> right. I forgot about that. Nice. Yeah, we recorded these episodes out of order. So we've yes. already recorded the Walt Simonson era episodes. <laughs> um. There's a nice little summary of AIM because it turns out the guys that made the ice creatures were from AIM, um, Advanced Idea Mechanics. Yeah. And it tells about their ties to Hydra, which I kind of knew but didn't really know. So it was nice to read that. Um, They're creating Modoc, the Super Adaptoid, and most importantly, the Cosmic Cube. Yeah, they kind of have to give us this recap because that's going to come into play heavily in the future here. So Cosmic Cube, big in the story of like Captain America and Red Skull and stuff like that. But also in terms of um, like Thanos, Thanos took over a comic Cosmic Cube for a while. Yep, yep, he did. And then um, Magus uses them very heavily in Infinity War. Yep. Uh, yeah, he actually gets quote, quas- cosmic cubes, even though they're not all cubes, from different realities. Yeah. Yeah. So then they go off to the negative zone. Um, yes, they head that direction. Uh, there's a great two-page, I was going to mention this two-page, yeah. uh, right, what is it, page 286 and 287, where it's just wordless. Ben... One word. Well, there's one word, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ben and, and Sharon finally get together on this alien spaceship and uh, ha- have uh, some rocky lovemaking. <laughs> and then on the other page, Johnny and Crystal, also it's a silent pantomime page, but uh, Johnny you know, has to stay away from her so that he doesn't succumb to his feelings. Which he addresses a little later in a couple of pages. Um, Johnny shows a um, an immense maturity that he rarely shows, um, and he um, he confronts Crystal and he says, "You are the most beautiful woman I have ever known, but I am married and I am not going to break my vows." Yeah. Just so you know, this is not going to happen. I love my wife, and I am sticking to that. Which is like, why is he even saying this to her? Well, because because, because he knows that um, she does have feelings for him. Okay, I guess so. So they gotta He's realized like, that. gotta lay it all out on the table. But yeah. they haven't really had a conversation like that. If they just didn't address their feelings at all and stayed away from each other, then. <laughs> <laughs> This issue is uh, the breakdowns are from Pollard like usual, but instead of Joe Sinnott, we have uh, Romeo Tangal, 
um, a great Filipino artist, and he is he does a really good job of trying trying his best to be Joe Sinnott. Um, you can tell that it's different, but it still looks really really nice. Uh, Joe Sinnott, I, I assume, had to take a break because of the double size annual that's coming up uh, in the next. That's that's, that's going to be the next thing that we talk about. So there's one page here where um, they say that there's a helicopter pilot or some sort of pilot, and they call him Brodsky, and that's a reference to Saul Brodsky. We had a Lee Stanley Jack Kirby reference in the last one. Saul Brodsky, who is a publisher for Marvel Comics um, at the, around this time, uh, he might have actually passed away just around this time as well. But he's referenced in here somewhere on here. It's on page two. Uh, by the way, with page 283, we get a person from the Space Agency for Defense Emergency. By the way, if they had taken the SP from space, they could have abbreviated it as Spade. <laughs> <laughs> and he's looking for Comet Man. There's another plot that never gets right. resolved they either. Go, and he's like, Comet Man's dangerous. I only just found out that there's uh, that you guys had him. I rushed over as soon as I could. And like, oh, you just missed him. <laughs> and... Alicia makes reference to his like strange buzzing voice. And then Comet Man later on is talking about his brother, the murderer, and talks about his buzzing voice. So the implication here is that this man is his brother. Trying to hunt him down. Trying to hunt him down. Yeah. And that, I guess, is continued whenever that Comet Man story picks up. I guess so. Eventually, I'm hoping that uh, Marvel puts out a Comet Man trade paperback that collects kind of the whole arc there because uh, I kind of want to find out what happens. Yeah. I'm just realizing a lot of our comments are so out of order and uh, some of our plot points that we're talking about are out of order as well. And it's just because there's so much going on and it's so uh, convoluted and intertwined. It's hard to keep it all straight. It's fun talking about the history. We're not even really talking about the Fantastic Four. No. <laughs> we mention them every once in a while, but... Yeah. Uh, they're, they're what drives yeah. this history lesson. And in fact, in this next issue, we're going to kind of talk about the Inhumans. Right. The the story is continued in Fantastic Four Annual Number uh, 21. And at this time in Marvel history, they were doing these huge annual stories that would span all of the different annuals for all of the different books. Right, like Atlantis Attacks yeah, and that kind of thing. And Evolutionary War was one of these ones where the high evolutionary is uh, trying to... Uh, he, he's, he's looking at the different races and, and trying to figure out how to make you know, the next evolutionary step in his, cre in his experiments. And so in this one, he is going after the Inhumans to try and get some Inhuman DNA to try and uh, find out what makes them tick. So he attacks the their home base on the blue area of the moon. Uh, meanwhile, the royal family, the Inhuman royal family, has come to the Fantastic Four's Four Freedom Plaza to say, Crystal, you got to come home with us. Quicksilver's back, and he wants to be your husband again. And guess what? He wasn't really crazy and, uh, like, uh, angry and, and abusive. He was being mind-controlled by uh, Maximus. Yeah, that makes everything okay, so you should come back. And Crystal's like, ah... No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I don't love him anymore. Yep. You know, if this were any if he were anybody else or we were anywhere else, we'd be divorced. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right because the inhuman's law says that marriage vows cannot be broken at all ever. You can separate, but you can never be divorced. Right. I think maybe you can, but it has to be approved by by the king, and the king is not approving this one. Right. Yeah, it's a tough spot. I found like this was an unfair end to Crystal's story here. Yeah. It's like, like it's not even her re choice really to leave the team. Um, she's kind of guilted into it. 
and they try to play it up like she it is her choice because she realizes Johnny is going to leave the team and she's like no 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 Johnny don't leave I'll leave instead I'll leave instead you can stay and it's like that's and also Black Bolt like he plays the family card oh we're all a family and she goes well but the Fantastic Four are family and, and they're part of my family too and he's like yeah well <laughs> not really <laughs> Yeah, so Crystal's story actually starts in um, a 12-issue limited series called Vision Scarlet Witch. This is where she, uh, like her marriage is falling apart and she has an affair with Vision and Wanda's realtor called Norman. And uh, (laughs) So boring. (laughs) Yeah, and we saw Norman pop up in a previous issue that we talked about in the last episode where he's like, you know what, you're messed up, so I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. So she's like... I don't know. She she just doesn't have anybody on her side anymore, yeah. uh, except the Fantastic Four and Johnny, who's like, I can't. I don't want anything to do with you anymore either because I'm married. <laughs> but poor her. It's like she's been put through the ringer, and now comes the part where she can take a stand and say, I don't think that Quicksilver is really going to change his ways. Uh, you know, I don't really want anything to do with Quicksilver. That part of my life is over. But instead, they really take away all of her agency and shove her back into this relationship yeah. that she doesn't want to be she's, a part she's of. She's really just funneled back toward it. Yeah. She starts off being really strong and saying, no, this is not going to happen. And then as the issue progresses, um, there are things that sort of happen that work her back toward that. And so it appears to be her decision, but it's really not. And we know through hindsight now, many, many years later, that it just doesn't work. They are not together currently. Right. Yeah. And Quicksilver does have anger issues and yeah. yep. is like, um, does have abusive relationships. And, and it has and, nothing to do with yeah. Maximus and it has nothing to do no. with... Uh, um, Hank Pym's long lost forgotten thought dead wife that yeah. t- took over his mind in a, in I'll, a story. In I'll, a... <laughs> I'll, I'll mention something about that in a okay, second. But, sure. but um, the, the interesting thing is that nobody ever considers the possibility that Quicksilver could be lying about this Maximus thing. Right. They're just like, oh yeah, Maximus, he takes over people's minds all the time. And uh, and I don't know if uh, like I don't know the Inhumans part of this whole story, so I don't know if um, there's any confirmation either way. But um, I was just reading that. I'm like, yeah, right. Knowing the Quicksilver character, he's totally just making this up to try and get back. Yeah. Um, but yes. So um, he says in his in a uh, in a battle with. Uh, with the West Coast Avengers, yeah, um, they encounter somebody named Maria Troivana Pym, or um, and this is Ant Man's first wife. Um, she was murdered during their honeymoon, um, but it turns out she wasn't actually dead. Um, she is the mother of the new wasp, Nadia Pin. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so this is interesting because I had asked this question in another episode that I was, I can't remember which episode, I think an Avengers episode. Um, because in, I think we mentioned this when we did our Ant-Man episodes, yep. that Hank Pym has this wife that no Nobody one ever, ever talks about. Because she died during their honeymoon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, and I think I mentioned this at that time as well, um, Nadia changed her name to Nadia Van Dyne. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) yikes. Uh, lots, lots of reasons there. Um, anyway, uh, so it turns out the person that Quicksilver actually fought, um, at that point was Sodom, a special organism, specialized organism designed for aggressive maneuvers, uh, (laughs) which is an aim modified person like Modoc, except not. And she believed that she was Maria Pym, um, but really she was not. She was an AIM agent named um, Olinka Barankova. Okay. But because of all the experimentation on her to make her this um, Sodom, she 
didn't have her memory and for whatever reason thought that she was Maria Pym. So obviously she says that she is. Everybody believes her for, you know, people come back from the dead, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but then it turns out that she wasn't. She later changes her name to be Modam. <laughs> so the specialized changes to the mental, kind of like Modoc. As far as the evolutionary war story, it actually is fine in this epic collection. I've read some of the other evolutionary stories, evolutionary war stories, and they don't work as well. But this one, because they actually tie it into the main story with what's going on, and the evolutionary war part is kind of just a, uh, it's a secondary thing. And it also is a self-contained um, incident. So yeah. it doesn't, you don't need to know about the larger story that's going on here. Uh, it just is kind of, it, it's just kind of there in the background. And it, I think it actually works well. As far as these big, long annual crossovers, some of them are way worse than this. Yeah. So in this, we have um, two backup stories. And a bunch and of pinups. And a bunch, bunch, bunch of pinups. Um, one of the backup stories follows Quicksilver. And another one follows the origins of the High Evolutionary. This one's chapter five. So... Um, We've talked a little bit about the Quicksilver one already. We've yeah. made mention to some of the things that goes on there. Yeah. Oh, by the way, we have this um, interesting encounter with a second watcher. Oh, and yeah. And we never find out about that. That's going sure to that's gonna of... come up a little bit later yeah. in the next fall, in the next epic collection. Yeah, so we have pinups of The Thing, Miss Marvel, uh, Human Torch, Alicia, uh, Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Woman, Tattletale. He's uh, Franklin Richards wearing his um, power pack outfit. Two Doctor Dooms and Crystal. Yep. And there's a great note. Um, there's a, a picture of a little post-it um, uh, index card um, paper clipped to this picture that says, obviously this feature was completed before the astounding events of this issue <laughs> because Crystal leaves. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, we have two Doctor Dooms here. One of them is the real Doctor Doom and the other one is Kristoff. And interestingly, the, um, the little text on this uh, pinup for Kristoff is saying how the other Doom is not the real Doom. I'm the real Doom. Right. Because he honestly believes he that. He honestly thinks that. Um, so the first backup story is just titled Crystal. And this is a follow-up to the actual events of this uh, issue. Um, Crystal decides to go back to the Inhumans. The Fantastic Four continue on their adventure um, without her. And so they leave, and then we get this backup story. And it's uh, we have a conversation between Quicksilver and Crystal. Yeah, and it's it's kind of what you would expect, them making a lot of excuses and she kind of accepting things. And in the end, you get definitely get the feeling that she is not satisfied yeah. with going back. Right. And the other thing is um, that, that, um, that makes this worse is that Blackpold and Medusa say, well, you're a royal figure. You need to look like you have it all together. You need to look happy with this relationship, yeah. even if you're not. And then the thing that uh, that sort of confirms to me, at least, that this is all a big lie by Quicksilver is that after Crystal agrees to return to Quicksilver and give this appearance of being happy and all that, Quicksilver goes, say, I think this happy occasion has caused my mental block on the running that um, fake Maria Pym put on, in place. Yeah has actually worn off or like, you know, maybe it's weakened. I can break through it. And so he tries to run and he stumbles a little bit, but then he's like, yeah, my super speed's back. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, that's convenient. Yeah. You say it? that, well, my speed's gone and my speed was part of what made me arrogant and blah, 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 blah. And I'm better now. And all of a sudden it's back. Yeah. It's so fishy. And I, I kind of wonder if it was written this way because Englehart didn't want to do this and maybe editorial kind of pushed it on him or something. Yeah. 
right at the very end of this short story, we have a very important little piece of information, which is going to tie into the next issue. Quicksilver is relaying information to Dr. Doom. Yeah. Okay, so I think we don't really need to spend a whole lot of time on the last chapter, the High Evolutionary nope. Origin Story. It's it's just a chapter among many that doesn't have anything to do with the Fantastic Four. No, nope. it doesn't even. It's really, neat. Yeah, it's it's yeah. interesting. Doesn't it has no real purpose for being in the Epic Collection except for the fact that the Epics publish everything. Right. So if you, it's, get, it was part of that. Annual, it was part of that so annual. Why not? Yep. So okay, we can continue on then to issue number three eighteen. 318 is called Beyond the Pale, and Dr. Doom shows up once again to the Four Freedoms Plaza to say, hey guys, I heard you're going to the negative zone. I want to go too. Can you, I hitch a ride? You need me. <laughs> yeah, he says, you need me You because Reed Richards is not with you. He's the guy who is the expert on the negative zone. And science and, in general. And, and so if you go without him, you will die. So you need to go with me and I will keep you safe. Yeah. And before he does that, though, we and get like, a, yeah right <laughs> yeah before he before he does that we get a little uh, prelude to to the whole story where Doom attacks Molecule Man for no reason yeah. we don't know it's him but then uh, uh, until after the fact yeah so he's just he's like attacking this random guy yeah. but then when he's been defeated we see the scars on his face yeah and uh, that's when Doom tells us who he is. Um, so yeah, so then they make their plans and they go to the negative zone. Did you know, I just noticed this here. Jim Shooter lives in the same, uh, building as, um, Alicia. Yeah. And it, it and says he's, he's been evicted. Been evicted. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. That's on page 360. If you want, when Doom is pushing Alicia's uh, buzzer. Yeah. That's funny. I didn't notice that the first time. So this is the first issue without Crystal. She's still in the corner box on the cover for the next few issues. But Doctor Doom fills in as the fourth member of the Fantastic Four for these next few issues here, or for the next two issues, I guess. Uh, and there's there's like there are like three splash pages in this issue. There's a lot of cool stuff here. Um, but they yeah they make their way to the negative zone and uh, and through that they find what do they call it? It's like uh, the into infi- in, infinity the, or whatever. Oh yeah. The What's the actual name? Thing. Crossroads to infinity. The crossroads to infinity. Yeah. So they have to make their way through the negative zone to the crossroads of infinity and that will take them into wherever the beyonders are because that's that's what they've been told by the nirwali i guess or something i don't Mm -hmm. know um on page 371 we have one of those splash pages that you mentioned and it's just um the ship which looks a lot like a quinjet yeah but uh it's got the ship flying through a bunch of kirby dots and random colorful shapes kind of a ditko-ish yeah, feel to and it. and what uh, people may not remember is that when you travel into the negative zone, there is a distortion field before that. Oh yeah, and um, usually that is um, characterized by very colorful, random shapes. Nice. I did not know that. Although I, bl- if I'm remembering correctly, um, the distortion field, the dis- distortion zone, is there to like convert them from the positive. Um, molecules to the negative molecules so that when they interact in the negative zone, they won't blow everything up. Hmm. But then Ben mentions that, oh, if we land on that planet, it's we're both going to explode because of the positive negative thing. But maybe he just doesn't no, realize... No, because he's negative. They're negative now. No, and the planet is positive, maybe? No, no, he says that they're, uh, the planet is antimatter. Oh, okay. But, but maybe it's just, you know, he forgets that the distortion field is going to like make that better because Reed's not there. Or maybe Engelhardt I mean, forgot what the purpose of the distortion field right. is. Because he he did um, 
get uh, hit with some rocks and stuff and he didn't explode. So. I feel like that distortion zone is something that is not used now in comics because like I'm thinking of when Johnny quote unquote died in the negative zone yeah. and Ben was it's right there. Doorway. It was just yeah. a doorway and Ben was watching it well, all it's, happen. It's better technology now. Yeah, I guess maybe. <laughs> Uh, Crystal, or sorry, Alicia is the one who convinces the Fantastic Four to go with Doctor Doom because she has this sort of a sixth sense. She says that um, she can feel the truth of a soul better than other people who who can see because she can't see. She sees other. She sees in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, they while they're traveling to the crossroads to infinity, they are attacked by Blastar. Of course, they are. Who is a uh, inhabitant of the negative zone? Very common that they would encounter him. And I love it. His reaction is, "This isn't the Fantastic Four. I see the the torch and two new monsters. <laughs> but, there's all, but where are the others in the?" And he's teamed yeah. up with Doom before, so he knows yeah. Doom. But it's like you're not a Fantastic Four. Yeah. <laughs> but this issue is really just. I, I found that even though it's focused on the Fantastic Four and doesn't dive heavy into the into the history, it's a filler issue. Yeah. To try and just get us to the other side of the negative zone. Like there's the point, the purpose of Blastar is totally pointless. And they, there's not really much of a fight with him at all. Yeah. It's just in order to get us, get us into our grand finale yeah. issue here. I, I think it's maybe to build a little bit of trust with Dr. Doom. Oh yeah. But, I can see that for yeah, sure. Yeah. But th- there's not much there. Uh, which brings us to 319. Dr. Doom versus the Beyonder. The title of this one is Secret Wars 3. So Secret Wars, oh, boy. Secret Wars has now gone from like a twelve-issue miniseries to a what is it? plus a zillion tie-ins. Right, and it was one of yeah. the first stories to to go crazy with the tie-ins. Right, which they made sense those tie-ins um, because the idea was um, he's like finding his emotions and learning right. about being so, human. So in Secret Wars uh, one, nineteen eighty-four, the Beyonder, he's one of these races of beings that live between realities kind of thing he gets a group of heroes and villains together on a patchwork planet called battle world to see who's greater or which is greater good or evil oh by the way sorry in that first encounter doom builds a device to steal the beyonder's power for himself yep uh in the following year we have secret wars 2 the beyonder has because of this encounter become fascinated with earth and by humanity and returns to earth so he can seek understanding about mortal life about um, emotions about what does it mean to be alive that kind of thing because uh, he's not well he's immortal or whatever yeah um he's encouraged by owen reese the molecule man um to go out and experience uh life and and that's the best education and that's why why he appears in so many of the, the titles yeah just in one or two issues yeah just because he encounters all of them and learns from them some so learns something from them about humanity so yeah, we go from a 12-issue mini to a 12-issue mini with all these tie-ins to a single issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Secret Wars 3 is just a single issue. So I want to play a clip from uh, Steve Engelhardt, an interview I did with him a few years ago, talking about why he did this story and uh, the purpose of Secret Wars 3. No, Marvel hated that character. Mar- that, <laughs> yeah. character <laughs> that character was a Jim Shooter special, okay. and okay. Shooter, Shooter had been ousted. Um, and the guys who were left, I mean, there's all these stories about how Shooter treated people badly and, and you know, and this and that. I wasn't really involved in that. I, I wouldn't tell you they weren't true based on what I know, but, I mean, I didn't experience it, so I can't say specifically. But 
Um, Ralph Macchio, who was my editor on the FF, came and said, I want the Beyonder written out of the Marvel Universe. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, you know, I don't, you can do anything you want to do, but I want him out. And, and I had, you know, I personally had not been a big fan of the Secret Wars. Um, I, you know, I didn't think that was that I didn't think that was an epic that was that was took advantage of all the things it could have taken advantage of. Um, but when I sat down to kind of, you know, OK, let's reread the Secret Wars and figure out who the Beyonder could be and what can I do with him and all, you know, all that stuff that yeah. I have to do. Um I found that I kind of liked him. I mean, not, not to, not, I didn't love him, but, um, you know, I, I thought, you know, shooter never treated me bad. Um, and I don't have any need to like screw shooter in the, you know, in the, in the great scheme of things and this character I can do something with. So, you know, I wrote what I hoped was, um, you know, I got rid of him, but I hope that I gave him some dignity and gave him a, you know, an interesting storyline and, and all that kind of thing along the way. Right. That's, yeah, so that's it for that. So did you, when you uh, first took the team into the Mole Man's caverns, did you have that outcome with the Beyonder in mind at that time? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Very definitely another thing that kind of, one thing led to another wow. thing led to another thing. Wow, because you, it's just so you tie everything together so well it seemed like you had all of these different threads kind of planned from the from the outside of that adventure well we like you to think that good <laughs> <laughs> he's such a weird character because he's like he's arrogant and he has all this power but he doesn't really do anything he just kind of exists and he's so like all knowing cuz he's got this cosmic awareness but he's also kind of childlike yeah so this issue is because we're trying to write out the beyonder out of existence how are we going to do that he can't be killed he can well, and what is it i think cubic is the one that says he can't the, the beyonder can't be killed he can only die right and so he kind of has to will himself out of existence or something right or he has to purposely evolve into something else right and that's what we get in this story through the through the course of the events we find out that this is and this is strange i always wondered why why is why did aim create the cosmic cube how could aim create the cosmic cube right you know you'd think that well this is a cosmic device it just sort of appears out of like the existence right. of the universe like the infinity gems right. are just they've been there They're since the of beginning of time the yeah. cosmic cube is one of those devices where i feel like really it was made by humans on earth right. but what we find out here and i don't know if this is new to this issue or if this was if this was um said before the uh, the aim scientists actually made two discoveries they made it um a dis they created a force field that can contain cosmic force yeah cosmic energy cosmic energy and then the other discovery is that they've created a portal that cosmic energy can flow through from a different dimension. And so they combined the two and the cosmic energy flowed into this force field and it took the shape of a cube. Right. And so this this place where they got the energy from was the realm of the Beyonders. The Beyonders, yes. yes. And that's, and so it was also, um, I don't know, again, where this story is told because I didn't look it up, but cosmic cubes, there are many of them in different realities yep. and across the universe, and they can evolve. So we meet two people here who are um, cubic and the shaper of worlds. Right. I think maybe has been mentioned before because the shaper of worlds is not new here. No. Um, 
Yeah. So and and and, and Cubic has been around for a while as well. So I, I think maybe they've mentioned this um, origin of the Cosmic Cube. I'm not sure though. But the the Cosmic Cube doesn't exist anymore because it's evolved in into right. Cubic. So right. Cubic is the evolved Cosmic Cube, and then the uh, Shaper of Worlds is he is a Skrull that has also evolved or well, merged with a Cosmic Cube. Well, it, it's it's the evolution of a Skrull Cosmic Cube. A, oh, that's that's what it is. So okay. the Skrulls have made a Cosmic Cube, and it became sentient, just as the Earth One did, and became the, and Shaper, became of the Shaper of Worlds. Right. Um, Shaper of Worlds. Um, well, the idea behind the Cosmic Cube is that um, this cosmic energy can basically grant wishes. It can alter reality to um, however your your dreams or your desires are. And the Shaper of Worlds is named as such because he works with Glorian the Dreamer uh, to create new worlds. Um, so the Dreamer thinks, uh, up. thinks them up and then the Shaper, the shaper makes of Worlds makes it reality. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And um, also... Um, Shaper Worlds created the microverse. Oh, okay. And um, so right now, uh, Cubic is a brand new evolved being, I guess? Uh, fairly reasoned at this point, yeah. And Cubic is kind of under the tutelage of the Shaper of the Worlds. Yeah. Uh, and what is revealed here is kind of a neat neat thing is that the, sh- the, the, the Beyonder is basically a vessel like the Cosmic Cube force field that AIM created. And Beyonder's cosmic power kind of got funneled into him to create the Beyonder, like the being. Right. So he's different from the Beyonders in the fact because that he's, he's, he's got a physical form kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. But the reason why he in Secret Wars 2 has felt not whole or not complete because he doesn't know, know human emotions or whatever is because at the moment that the Beyonder became the Beyonder, Owen, in his job way back when he was normal, had an accident. And um, during that accident, a sliver of the cosmic power that was supposed to go into the Beyonder went into Owen creating the Molecule Man. Right. He was a custodian. Yeah, right. Custodian. And, and he bumped a machine or whatever. And, and it was supposed to... Like the aim uh, creation of the cosmic cube is supposed to funnel the uh, energy into one of these force fields, but it wasn't there. It went into Owen so, instead. Yeah, funneled into him instead. So he's got a tiny, teeny, teeny little sliver of cosmic power, but still, he's one of the most powerful people on the planet. Yes, because of that tiny little sliver of power. And then the Beyonder has the rest of it, ninety nine point nine percent of yeah of the rest of the, the power. So. In the end, they realize that if they merge, they will be fully whole. And so the Beyonder and the Molecule merge and become a brand new cosmic cube. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time of all of this, Dr. Doom has uh, made claims that the only thing that I want is to have my memories back. What memories do you say? I do say that. (laughs) Um, This here is another real like weird convoluted thing. Um, I mentioned in Secret Wars, <laughs> yeah. Doctor Doom steals the Beyonder's power. Yeah. And um, in Secret Wars, just before that, we think that Doctor Doom has been like destroyed. Yeah. He's been killed. And this is in John Byrne's Fantastic Four story, right? Um, yeah. So what happened, though, is he didn't actually... Uh, well, his body died, but his like consciousness, he managed to transfer his consciousness into somebody else. Which he does kind of on a regular basis. He does, <laughs> especially in, in, in like the old days. He he did that with Reed all the time kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so he would transfer his consciousness. So he transferred his consciousness out of this dying body into this, uh, this random guy. Yeah. And lived that guy's life for a while, secretly plotting to, like, plotting his revenge. This is when he created the device to steal the Beyonder's power. 
and um, eventually worked his way up to face the Beyonder. And oh man, I'm gonna mess this up. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't it such? Again. Yeah, isn't it such that uh, the Beyonder, because right. Doctor so, Doom was technically dead, yeah. Beyonder wanted Doctor Doom to be part of the Secret Wars, so he had to pull Doctor Doom from a different time. Right. So, so before Secret Wars, Doctor Doom dies, transfers consciousness into this other guy. Beyonder goes, wait. I need a Doctor Doom here. So he pulls him from the future. And that future version that um, that is in Secret Wars and then steals the Beyonder's power is the one where Doctor Doom has been in this other guy's body the whole time. Yeah. So after the Beyonder like stops Doctor Doom from taking his powers, he's like going to kill him. And Reed tells him, no, wait, you can't do that. You took him from the future and he's got to go back there. But you can't have let him have any like memory of this time. Yeah. So you got to erase the, those memories. And so what ends up being erased is all of the time from when he died up to when the Beyonder puts him back. So he has no memory of being in this other guy's life. He has no memory of going to Battle Worlds and being part of the Secret Wars. Right. Something like that. <laughs> but he does kind of remember the Beyonder because he knows that he took power from the Beyonder. Right. But he's also pieced together a lot of this information from talking to people. Yeah. Um, he knows about his time as this other person by talking to the wife. And I think the memories he wants to get back are how on earth did he manage to steal the Beyonder's power? Because if he can do that again, right. he can control the world. Now, he doesn't say that that's the case. Right. Um, and he really doesn't let on at all. He really just wants to get his memories back and be made whole, just like the Beyonder. Yeah. But then once the Cosmic Cube reappears, um, he grabs it to get his memories back. And now all of a sudden, um, it's obvious to Cubic that this is actually what he wanted all along. Right. <laughs> And then it then it just ends. Yeah. Basically, it's like all of a sudden people are transported back to the to the Four Freedoms Plaza. Yep. Including um, Volcana, uh, who is Molecule Man's wife. Yep. They've got an interesting relationship. Yeah. And and they all go their separate ways. Doctor Doom says, "I've made good on my deal. I have my memories back, so I'm out of here." They let him leave. Volcana's obviously distraught because her husband is gone. Has become one with the universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. And then uh, and Sh Sharon and Ben just kind of walk off into the sunset. And yeah. they, they they talk about it. Like Ben said that his one wish, if he had held the cosmic cube, um, or he well, I think that uh, Sharon would have switched both of them back to be human. Right. But but Ben's like you know no it's okay I'm like I said I'm satisfied with the way I am. Yeah. He wanted universal peace. He wanted universal peace. Yeah, and Doom's response to that is like, huh, wait till I take over the world. I'll give you universal peace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. then they just walk off, and he says, and then uh, Sharon says, and to think this all started in the tunnels of the Mole Man seventy-five issues ago. Yeah, the <laughs> end. And like, wow. So we went from, yeah, Mole Man to contemplating the purpose of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> it's like crazy. And these characters, Mole Man, Volcana, uh, the Cube, the Cube eventually evolves of, uh, in his own and then becomes a disciple of Cubic. Yep. And those stories we've already talked about yep. because they show up in different annuals or whatever in the Walt, during the Walt Simonson era. The story just keeps on continuing and evolving. It's kind of neat. Interestingly, uh, Cubic actually came back recently. The cosmic cube that made up Cubic was reverted to a cosmic cube at one point. And then um, I believe it was Hydra. No, I can't remember who. Somebody split it into tiny little shards. Oh, yeah. And Hydra found them all and reconstituted this cosmic cube. 
and then it turned back into cubic in the form of a little girl. Oh, okay. And that cubic was instrumental in the entire Captain America Hydra story. The Secret Empire one? Secret Empire, yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense because AIM is, was part of yeah. Secret Empire it and Hydra. It all comes back together. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how tight the continuity is in these in, in certain, you know, certain places like yeah. this. And, you know, I, I have to give credit, I think, to Marvel in their uh, current editorial structure where they have editors at different levels to try and manage all of this yeah i think you see in other places where they don't have that level those different levels and layers of editorial um oversight then you start to see a lot of yeah gaps and holes you kind of have to have editors that are experienced in different eras because if you think about right. fantastic four in this right here 1988 what is that what i said yeah. it is in 1988 the marvel universe had really only been formed 25 years earlier maybe mm-hmm. almost almost 30 years and now we're like 75 years out and like 75 years of history is a lot to keep track of especially with stories like this which adds <laughs> exactly. so much into the continuity you know, of things maybe this is why um this wasn't in the uh the history of the, the history Marvel universe because it's just this one appearance in this one issue of fantastic four that ties it together very well but nobody remembers it yeah Wow. So uh, there's oh, there's one more thing I want to mention. There's one <laughs> page here where they're traveling through. Um, they they see a vision of Reed Richards and Sue oh, and yes. the Silver Surfer. I was going to ask about that. So that oh, it, that reminds me. There's one thing I want to mention as well. But go ahead. Uh, that is just a a random page. But if you read Silver Surfer number 16, you see it from the other perspective because Steve Englehart is writing Silver Surfer at this time. I was wondering about that. And there is a part where you see just a random shot of Ben and they don't know why he looks the way he does and, and that kind of thing. And... And uh, and then we get to find out why Sue and Reed are with the Silver Surfer in outer space. When they're supposed to be, you know, living a normal life. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, there it is. It's on page 387. Right. Uh, the point I wanted to make back a page on 386. When they enter the crossroads of infinity... Um, they go through a uh, a lightless universe, and then they go through another one that's full of um, celestials, and then they go through another one full of cosmic cubes hmm. right before they see um, Reed and Sue. Right. And it's mentioned later on in this issue that the uh, Beyonders are from a place that is lightless on page 404. Somewhere in the negative zone, the mad conjunction of realms around, uh, around us is a lightless universe. They dwell there. Well, they just pass through it. <laughs> <laughs> they could have saved themselves a whole lot of trouble and just right? stopped there, stop there and say yeah. hi. And then yeah. there we go. They wouldn't have met the Beyonder at all. Yeah. Although it is really interesting that um, we have this level of, well, there's the Beyonders. And then there's like, after that, there's the Celestials. And then after that, there's like the Cosmic Cubes. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> this whole thing, like you said, doesn't feel like a Fantastic Four story. It it's, really doesn't. It's so strange. This is is more like a like a Jim Starlin cosmic event kind of story. Yeah. And just happens to have the Fantastic Four as like we're taking along this force. journey with the Fantastic Four. We are the Fantastic Four. Yeah. Just kind of we're just observing things that happen. Yeah. And that's really because it's all out of our control. Everything that happens here, we have nothing to do with anything. Yeah. The Fantastic Four are really passive through this whole thing. Yeah. Except for the decision to go check out the Mole Man's tunnels. <laughs> 
that was like the last act. Well, not not the last, but that was one of the last actual uh, decisions they made, like choices um, choices along the story that they made. Yeah, I mean, they kind of do. I mean, they they ben, make the decision to keep following it. Yes, they make the decision to keep following it and uncovering yeah. the clues and stuff, but they don't have any role in like the creation of this new cosmic cube or no. or anything. They're not involved in that at all. Yeah. And then it kind of like it reverts back to normal. The next issue, we we want to go on to the next issue with like classic thing versus Hulk. Yeah, it's like let's let's take a step back from this massive epic tale and do something a little more uh, back to reality. And this is kind of cool because both of these characters have undergone some dramatic changes in their own physical appearance and their personality and everything in their respective titles. And the Hulk versus thing is always a is always a thing. <laughs> right, <laughs> pardon the pun. Right, but it's like that's been that's been like the the question forever is who would win Hulk versus Thing, and they always have these fights. Like every five years, they have another fight. And this is the first time that it's really shifted with the two of them. Right. Yeah, the Hulk's always stronger. Yeah, well, we know the Hulk's the strongest. There yeah. Is. So so uh, the Hulk says in this issue in uh, in Fantastic Four three twenty, he says, "I've always beaten the Thing, and every single time we've met." And I was like, oh, is that true? I think it is. So I did a little Google search and uh, CBR.com has a very helpful article <laughs> yeah. okay. where they recap up to a certain point. They recap every time like Hulk and Thing have fought. Yeah. And up to this point, either Hulk has won or no Reed, conclusive. No, or Reed has interrupted yeah. with some sort of like Hulk defeating weapon. Uh-huh. So it's never been a decisive or sorry, uh, there was one where the thing did win on his own, but the Hulk was in a weakened state at the time. So it doesn't really like, you know, that could maybe not count. Yeah, it always has been the thing, though, that that the Hulk, he just like the strength is his thing. Right. That's his and, and, main And particularly um, after a while, the stronger he gets, or sorry, the madder he gets, the stronger he gets, right. which he can't beat because you punch him, he gets mad. <laughs> well, that's the other thing is he's known for his anger. Yeah. Uh, and the, the thing, though, is not known. I mean, he's known for his strength for sure, but that's yeah. not his defining characteristic, no. I think. Uh, and so His heart is. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, and his heart gets stronger when he gets angrier. No, um, but in this, his heart grew three sizes. In this instance, what's happening with the Hulk right now, in case you are not familiar, is that he's gray. He is presumed dead when he had a little journey through. I don't know the crossroads of infinity or something like that. I don't know what it's called. Um, there was some sort of big gamma explosion, and uh, and that sent him on this weird journey. And everybody thought he was dead. Right. And now he's gray, and he has his intelligence, but he's some not. Of it. But he's not as strong. Right. Um, right. Yeah. He doesn't have all of his intelligence, but he's not mindless. Right. But, and he's definitely not Bruce Banner. Yeah. And he's working as a bodyguard in Las Vegas. Yeah, at a casino. Um, so he's... And, and the this really plays into the idea that as the Hulk is more intelligent, he loses strength. So he's clearly not as strong, although he thinks he is. He's clearly not as strong as he used to be, um, though he definitely has more facilities. Um, but another interesting thing is that um, going back to the original Hulk who was gray when he first appeared, right? Yep. Similar to that one, he also gets stronger at night. Right. And so uh, that plays into this story as well. He gets stronger and has more stamina when it's nighttime. And now he's going to face against uh, Ben, who is uh, rockier, and he his strength has been enhanced as well. Right. So while this, the Hulk has been weakened, Ben has actually become stronger. Yeah. And so they're both surprised by this. 
Yeah. Uh, and so, so the, the point of this issue here is really, the, the, of this two-part story, is really just to pit the two against each other. So a lot of this two-part story is just fighting. Right. And but it is wrapped in this really interesting story about Dr. Doom. That's true. Yeah. Dr. Doom is back. We only just saw him, like, last issue or something, right? And he's... Right, when he was defeated um, for trying to steal the Beyonder's powers yeah. again. And he's mad at the FF. And so he's using Hulk. And I love this version of Dr. Doom because he's manipulating the Hulk just by saying certain things to him. And this is this is pure Dr. Doom, like, scheming. It's really, really great because he knows exactly what to say in order to push the buttons and um, and coerce Hulk into going and fighting Thing. Yeah, the really interesting thing is that he actually didn't know the right thing to say at first. He tries to appeal to him as if he is the the original Green Hulk. Right. And that doesn't work, but he quickly realizes how to how to appeal to him after that. Yeah, yeah. And that, it shifts that quick, his plot. The quick thinking is, yeah. is very good, yeah. Um, but we've, we have a really quick uh, recap of how uh, Doom got into this situation where he's not the ruler of Latveria, which is kind of nice because um, it's been a while since that actually has taken place. And, uh, <laughs> and they don't mention while. it very much, yeah. Um, yeah, so most of this issue, I say, let's see here, we get... One, two, three, four, four five, six, six seven. We get seven pages, and then the rest of this issue is literally and the punching. other one, yeah. <laughs> but the rest of this issue, the yes. Fantastic Four issue, is yeah. punching, and it's actually very well done. Keith it is Pollard, so well done. Keith I Pollard's love the a art. great artist yeah. with Joe Sinnott doing the ink, so we have a really excellent uh, team. But when it's a fight, it has the it can have the tendency to get boring fast, I think. Yeah. Well, especially a prolonged one like this. And a lot of the times, the fights are to appeal to, you know, the eight-year-old boys who are picking up these comics because it's like fight, fight, fight. Us older, you know, more experienced <laughs> readers, I think, and this is maybe just my opinion, but I think I kind of just kind of skip over a lot of the fights sometimes. And I kind of do this with Marvel movies as well. It's like <laughs> I check out a little bit during the long, prolonged fight sequences because it's like, let's get back to the story. Well, and especially that's why, I, and I've said this before, that's why I like the Fantastic Four. It's not about the fight. Yeah. It's about the relationships. It's about the adventure and all that kind of stuff that's not fighting. But that being said, Keith Pollard does a very, very good job of not just having page after page of the same just punching people in the head. Yeah. Like there's different things that happen. There's different ways that they're fighting. Yeah. There's different the, moves that they're yeah, doing. Yeah, the strategies, the angles, the just the... Even the, the locations. De- yeah, the demonstration of the destruction. Yeah, they're, they're locations. They're definitely progressing through the city. Yeah, and at one point they fall into the sewer... And it's just uh, it's just really really well done. You know you know what's a good modern example that sort of uh, is like this is the Peter Griffin versus chicken fights in Family Guy. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> I mean, clearly this is better, but the same idea where like it's it's not always the same thing. They're finding new creative ways to beat each other up, <laughs> and it progresses through the city in different locations and things. There's more than one of those fights. Oh yeah, there's like I, four or five of them. I have not watched Family Guy enough to <laughs> to know more than just one of. Them. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, and there's not a whole lot to no. this, well, this story. So just, just going back to Dr. Doom, yeah. though, um, I always find it strange how for someone who thinks he's so much better than everybody else, he sure teams up with people a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he needs other people's help. He right. All but, the time. but this one, he actually makes a win-win plan for himself where either he's going to convince the Hulk to help him take back Latveria and make him like a minister in his, in his government and have this like super strong ally or that failing, he's going to toss him against the thing. Right. And either way, you know, he's a, he's winning on this. So I, I thought that was really clever. Except that he, by the end of the story, he loses. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it didn't work out well, exactly. either way. It never does. Um, I, I do also find it interesting that on uh, page 427, um, when we see the Fantastic Four in the, in the Four Freedoms Plaza, they have to asterisk read and make a footnote. <laughs> yeah, Reed right. Richards, the original FF leader. This just demonstrates that they think that, okay, well, we've had this team for long enough and it's been around for a while, right? I wonder, though, if that's for the people oh, that, that might for, be for who the are Hulk reading readers. the Hulk, who never read Fantastic Four, yeah. because the previous issue of the Hulk said, hey, this story's continued in Fantastic yeah. Four, whatever. Right. But, you know, if, if, you, if you follow Hulk enough, you've come across the Fantastic Four. Yes, but you might not know That's true. that Reed Richards is not the leader at the moment. Did you see the editorial box here, who it's credited by? The asterisk says Reed Richards, the original FF leader, and then oh, yes. it's credited to Reed Ralfords, yeah. <laughs> Ralph Macchio. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, the the twist at the end here is that all of a sudden, um, Ben doesn't believe that he's fighting the real Hulk because he thinks the Hulk is dead and this guy's gray and not as strong. So yeah. obviously he's not the Hulk. Then the real Hulk shows up, the real green one with the Hulk smash. Surprise! And that takes us into the next yeah. issue, which is Incredible Hulk number 350. Now, before we go into that, I just want to point out one last thing. Page 430, the best um, sound effect here. The thing punches the Hulk and it goes, spam. Spam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry, continue. So... This issue of Incredible Hulk is written by Peter David, who is the regular writer on Hulk at the time. And it's penciled by Jeff Purvis, who is the regular penciler at the time, with inks from Terry Austin. And you can't have, like, two more contrasting oh, artists man. here. This is so different. I Like, you flip the page, and you instantly uh, miss the work of um, Joe Sinnott and, and Keith Pollard. And Keith Pollard, yeah. yeah. I, and, well, and mainly because, I think we mentioned this earlier, uh, they created such a complex-looking character in the new version of The Thing, yep. and nobody else yet knows how to draw him. Right. Yeah, Jeff doesn't do like the um, the suspenders, the row of suspender right. rocks that are yeah. going down his front and back, and and like the the face ones uh, are a little inconsistent and and don't really look the same. And it's just because nobody's really made a like a a, a, a new thing bible uh, on how to draw him, right? I guess, yeah. But I think part of Jeff's problem also is that he doesn't rely on spot blacks very much. Right. And so his drawings just look a lot more open and... Flat. And, and flat, think, yeah. yeah. I think that's it. I also just think that the uh, the models are a little inconsistent as well. Like sometimes uh, Grey Hulk in particular looks like taller and sort of uh, more slim for the Hulk. And other times he looks a little shorter and stockier. And Yeah, he's not my favorite artist. However, if you can put your mind outside of yes. the way it looks... Yep. 
the storytelling is actually really good. Right. He lays out his panels and he lays out his characters and everything uh, in a very good way. So most of this issue is fighting also. Yeah. And it's not as dynamic and bombastic as Pollard and Sinnott, but he still does a good job of keeping the fighting interesting. Yeah. Um, my favorite part of this is when um, they get thrown into the like the Broadway theater or the Radio, Radio City, City Music Hall. Yeah. And they start hitting each other with the fake buildings. <laughs> yeah. And it's just this great image of like Hulk and Thing beating each other up with a building. Yeah. It's shades <laughs> of like Godzilla or something. Totally. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then we get to also the, uh, we get to find out what's up with the Hulk, the green one. And it's revealed that this is, um, who is now known as quote, cosmic Hulk. (laughs) Yeah. Um, because in his first appearance, uh, he was, he's a robot experiment by some, uh, MIT scientists. And uh, it was accidentally brought to life by exposure to cosmic energy from the Unimind, who's the like the leader of um, the Eternals. It's when all of the Eternals combine. Right, sorry, right, yes. It's when all of the Eternals combine and uh, they have this great like mental power yep. and somehow that accidentally brought this robot to life. And so in the original uh, story, he was imbued with all this cosmic power and then he lost that by the end of that story. And so Thing figures this out because the Hulk, he says there's no variation in his in his punches. They all feel exactly the same. And yeah. he, he thinks there's something up. And so on page 453, the Thing decides this guy's just a robot. So he like really punches down on his he chest. He just knuckles and, in. And on, he knuckles yeah. <laughs> in on the, on, the, on the Hulk's chest and rips open. It's like, you got to be 100% sure that that's a yeah. robot before yeah. you do that well, kind but, of thing. But I, what I find is really interesting. And again, with Jeff's art it's not totally clear but um the page before that the hulk just stands there and takes a few punches from the hulk and i think that's how he's sure yeah he's testing he's testing the hulk he's like you know i felt the hulk punch before and even in this new body i'm still gonna know this and so he's just like punch me and so he takes three or four and he's like these are nothing (laughs) (laughs) you're not the hulk yeah definitely not the hulk so he takes care of the robot, but now he still has to take care of the other issue, which is the other Hulk, the gray one. And now that Hulk is starting to talk to him, uh, which that was a cool move, I think. The Hulk knew enough about his battles with the thing, of course, because he is the Hulk, right. that he shouldn't talk. Otherwise, he'll give away his advantage of you know having his knowledge. Yeah, Nice tactical move there, I think. Yeah. But eventually enough is enough, and he starts talking to, uh, to, to Ben, and Ben realizes this is the real deal. Right. And in the end, um, the Doctor Doom makes one kind of last ditch attempt to try and get Thing to come back with him to Latveria, and Ben's like, mm. uh, the Hulk. I mean, sorry, and Hulk is like, uh, I'll think about it. <laughs> yeah, and he goes, odds are you'll end up working for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a couple things I want to point out here. I really love um, Peter David's writing. Yes. And I didn't realize this until like fairly recently with his uh, X Factor work and that kind of stuff. Um, but even going back and looking at it now, um, he has this one line that he gives to Dr. Doom. Uh, Dr. Doom's looking at the Hulk robot and he goes, um, should I ever meet the designer? I shall do him the honor of shaking his hand before obliterating him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that is so Doom, especially because the creator is like some sort of human, just normal average, <laughs> average scientist, quote, average scientist. And then on the next page, the Hulk robot gets thrown out of Radio City Music Hall, and one of the bystanders goes, oh, look, Bill Bixby must be in town. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he does a really good job with combining uh, humor yes. 
and keeping things kind of light through these tense situations. Which is exactly what I loved about when he was writing um, uh, like Multiple Man in uh, X Factor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the the thing, uh, the thing breaks the Cosmic Hulk robot and he goes, oh, this must be Doom. And I'm thinking, this is interesting because he's right. But he, but doesn't, he doesn't know right. that he's right. Yeah. And if Reed were there, Reed would look at the robot and be like, this isn't Doom. Mm, right. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah, he knows Doom's robots. Right. But Ben is just like, it's a robot. It's got to be Doom. Yeah, I know. And so the funny thing is, if the smart guy had been there, they would have gone off on a different path. <laughs> it would have taken them to the Eternals. Right. Or MIT, maybe. Yeah, so so when the Hulk is leading the thing through the forest, I guess Central Park, he keeps like getting so far ahead of, of Ben. And no matter how fast Ben's running, he can't catch up. And he makes this, uh, uh, the, the thing makes this comment, Doom must have built some sort of matter transmitter in him, like uh, like that Nightcrawler creep had. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Did he? Uh, well, just the ability to tra- teleport. Oh, but not by means of an electrical, electronic yeah. device. I, I don't think so. But the had made me interested. So I looked it up and it turns out this is a really bad time for the X-Men. Uh, the Nightcrawler was injured by Nimrod in um, X- Un- Uncanny X-Men 209, November 1986. And... He hasn't been able to teleport since um, uh, up until this time. And actually, he just went into a coma oh. earlier uh, in this, uh, the year of, of, of this uh, this book here uh, in Uncanny X-Men 227 uh, because he like overexerted himself trying to do a massive teleport to save everybody kind of thing. Right. Um, Shadow Cat can't phase right now because of the Marauders in Uncanny X-Men 211. Um, Angel was pinned to the wall by the Marauders in X-Factor 10 right. recently, which led to him becoming Archangel. Yep. Storm hasn't had her powers. She actually just got them back in Uncanny uh, 226 again earlier in this year. But um, but <laughs> it's it's kind of rough for the X-Men. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting to, that he sort of threw that in there. And then one last comment that I would, wanted to make on uh, 457. He picks up a big tree, swings it at where he thinks the Hulk is. And he goes, I'm the Mickey Mantle of the orange set. And when I'm done swinging my bat, you'll be Mickey dismantled. <laughs> <laughs> love, it. love it. I love his terrible puns. Uh well, I think that wraps up all of our talk for this episode. Yeah. This finishes off the epic collection. There are a few bonus features. We talked about some of the bonus features in the previous episode, the ones that related to that material. Yeah. But there are a few things here that relate to the back half of this book, right? Right. So there is a one-page uh, mini story from Marvel Age Annual number 3, June 1987. And that is actually sort of a recap of uh, what happened in volume 17 in the beginning of 18 in order to bring us to the point of the new Fantastic Four. Um, and it sort of hints at who could be coming up in the future um, in terms of villains. And we see some of those in here. Then there is a, an excerpt from Marvel Age number 60 from March 1988. Uh, it's like an editorial piece by, uh, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, I'm sorry, Bill Slavicek. And uh, it's all about the new Fantastic Four. And it seems like it's uh, uh, an editorial written based on his an interview that he had with uh, Steve Englehart. And uh, it's all about the formation of the new Fantastic Four and why he chose these characters and things and why he, why he decided to shake up the team. Right. Which you can hear a lot of that information also on my podcast Ooh. with my interview with Steve Englehart. Just uh, <laughs> go to the website and go to the index at the top of the page or do a search for Steve Englehart and you should find that there. 
So just a couple excerpts from there. Uh, he says, the, the original premise of the series concerned uh, Fantastic Four concerned normal people caught up in circumstances beyond their control. The Fantastic Four was the genesis of the whole Marvel concept, a concept wherein heroes were real people with real problems, rather than Reed, do Reed, Sue, Ben, and Johnny fighting battle after battle together with 25 years behind them. Steve thought it was time to try to shake the, uh, shake the premise up. Uh, and then a quote from Steve, a lot of people missed that old energy, that feeling of change. Now they want to know where Reed and Sue are. As we go further with my plans, I think people will get caught up in the new energy I'm trying to instill in the characters that they're living in a world they don't totally understand. I think that's a pretty good summary right there. Yeah, unfortunately, he doesn't get to execute his plans no. like he wants to. When we eventually get to the next episode, whenever that epic collection comes out, uh, it kind of goes a little off the rails because there's a lot of editorial interference and mm-hmm. Steve Englehart mm-hmm. just kind of kind of withers on this title and just leaves. Yeah, and one thing um, Steve actually said in here was that he was really liking the way that the new thing, especially the, the new look of the thing, was going. And he's like, he might never ever change back. Yeah, well... <laughs> Not according to editorial. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, right? Um, so the one other piece that I wanted to point out here was, it says, um, how did they decide on the new members of the team? Steve was looking for characters who would make the team different, but didn't want to turn the FF into the Avengers. And then a quote again, I write both books, but the FF has a different slant. The truth is, anybody can be an Avenger. If you're a good hero and you can follow a couple basic rules, you can join the Avengers. But the Fantastic Four is more family-oriented. They've always been a tight-knit group of friends. I wanted to change the cast, but had to keep that sense of family or it wouldn't work. That's a good point. Totally. And so then he goes on to explain how he had to keep... um, He wanted to make Ben the leader, and then he had to keep uh, Johnny because of the Johnny, Alicia, Ben situation, which he also found interesting. And then he's like, well, who else could we have? And they thought about Black Panther, Medusa, Luke Cage, whom they all mention when they're talking about who who should the new members be right um and he says here that he did actually come up with the idea of crystal and then later on miss marvel because of the romantic um uh situations and and drama that he could uh, play with there right yeah and so it wasn't just like he chose those people or they came along or whatever and then he developed those stories like that was the intention that's good i mean I, i i like it when writers have a plan yeah and are intentional about that I mean, and most writers are I, I don't think there are any writers that are like eh, you know what I'm writing the Avengers now I'm just gonna stick my hand in this hat full of names and we'll see who pulls, who pulls well, out but but occasionally again editorial interference there are some uh, yeah. there are some times where the editors or higher up say you have to use this character that's true. That's yeah. why Steve wrote the thing in West Coast Avengers, which is again back in this uh, this uh, interview here. He says that's where I came to love the thing, writing him in the West Coast Avengers. <laughs> yeah, and that wasn't his choice. Yeah, the editors said, "Hey, uh, we got we got to do something not with on him. the Fantastic Four right now, so you can have them in West Coast Avengers." Yeah, do you have any closing comments about this book, both the stuff we talked about last time and this time? Um, not really. Uh, it, it, it's a bit of a rocky read um, in parts just because of some of the, the cringe of the, the relationship drama. Yeah. Um, but overall, it's pretty good um, esta- at establishing, especially by the end, this new uh, this new Fantastic Four. And knowing sort of what comes next a little bit, um, I'm looking forward to reading that again. <laughs> uh, I have to say I agree about it being rocky. There's definitely some great stuff in here. I love Steve Englehart's like interpersonal relationships, all of that that drama. I think people will get lost and and hung up on the Beyonder story. 
Yeah, um, I think that's the Secret hard Wars part to get, is, yeah. get through. You have to really appreciate the history of the Marvel Universe in order to really get that. Yeah, but but if you if you stick with this new team, stick with this new version of the thing and Miss Marvel, it does get better. For a little while, and then it gets terrible. Well. And then Tom DeFalco comes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's some of my favorite stuff. Uh, um, actually, no, it's... Uh, yeah. it's um, Simonson after right. after this. Yes. So Simonson first. And that's, that's really good yep, stuff. That's, and that's then Tom good. DeFalco. So yeah, it's yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, this is this is I think do we do you think that we've reached the pinnacle of Steve Englehart's run here and it just kind of I think it just kind of goes downhill from here. Um I don't remember exactly which issues are right uh, after this. I know we've got uh, Aaron the Rogue Watcher yeah. and those kind of stories. I That's enjoyed those ones. Well, I liked those ones. Okay, you're going to have to read these in context of the the right. larger story here and, Yeah, and you know what? Maybe maybe I'm a little like like I haven't actually read these all in order in a, in I just I don't think I've Decades. ever read them all in order. Oh, there you but go. I, I, I haven't read the, even these issues just yet in a long time so yeah, maybe you might be I'm, surprised maybe i missed remembering okay but well, we'll uh, figure that out yeah. whenever that epic collection hopefully soon i'd like to get the rest of steve Englehart's run all yeah. together here three nice volumes yeah okay everybody if check us out on facebook instagram twitter you can see me on my new youtube channel you can Ooh. find my facebook group where we talk about epic collections you just got to search epic collections in facebook and you'll find us uh, other than that Thanks, Eric, for being part of this episode of the Fantastic Four again. No problem. I look forward to the next one. Yeah, me too. We'll see you all next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.